There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 3rd of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The first annual update of Housing for All has been published. The government says it is confident at this stage that the 2022 Housing for All target of some 24,600 new homes will be exceeded and that already supply of new homes is increasing with 20,807 new homes completed in the first three quarters of the year. And that's more, by the way, than all of the new homes that were delivered in 2021. Furthermore, the government claims that homes are being provided in the right places in line with compact growth objectives, which are aimed at building sustainable and vibrant communities across the country. But it does recognise some challenges, unprecedented difficulties uh, as it's uh, described arising from the war in Ukraine but not just that also the energy crisis and the rising interest rates that we're seeing all of uh, the time and as a result of that uh, the updated plan the government says responds to these changed circumstances. Good morning to the Minister of State Damien English who's on the line a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, People may be a little bit surprised uh, at uh, how satisfied the government sounds uh, at its own success, given the crisis that there is in housing. Uh, good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Uh, I think, Michael, for us, the, the key is that we're, that we're able to reach our targets, and that most people out there can see housing activity uh, in many parts of the country where they wouldn't have seen it seven or eight years ago, and can now believe that the housing programme, spending over $4.5 billion of taxpayers' money, is having an impact. Naturally, we all wanted to go faster and to deliver quicker. But the, the key things for me, that if we're looking at the, the success of the plan, and, and everyone knows it, it's not a success until we have the houses we need right across the country. It takes a number of years to do that. But you have to have your milestones and your targets for each year. 
again, we overcooked this before with the rebuilding Ireland program, mm. which was which would, had completely changed house building up to 2019, 2020, and was making great progress, and then got knocked back with COVID and everything else has happened since. So we're now back on track to deliver what we would say the target this year was for 25,000 houses. It looks like we, we will be over that. And at one stage there, if you compare September to September, there was nearly 28,000 houses, homes completed in in those 12 months. And, and, and this year, we think we're on track for about 25,000 plus, which is a real positive. We want to bring that to 33,000. So there's no patting on the back here. It just means we're, we're, we're making the right steps to get there. Yeah. Are you we're reaching the targets within that overall target? Uh, because part, yeah. of, uh, part of the targets uh, were to, re- to, to deliver 9,000 social housing units. Uh, how, many yeah. will, how many will there be given that there were just 1,765 of them in the first six months of the year? Yeah, so okay, so, so the target there was to reach over 9,000 social housing for this year. So the best way to analyse that is to see what's completed so far and then what's on site and can be completed before the end of the year. So yeah. what's completed, we say, in the first seven months this year was just under 3,000 social homes, 2858. And what's on site at this moment in time as we talk is about 8,200. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the majority of them are on track to be completed. And it would usually happen with social housing delivery. It happens in the last quarter. So we're confident that we're on track to be over that 9,000 delivery of social housing. And what's important for me is looking ahead into next year. What are you on track to deliver there? And coming through the planning and development stage is about 12,500. So that gives you your pipeline for houses for next year. The money is set aside to deliver over 11,500 homes next year. So mm. I think we're on track for this year. So you believe more forward. more than 6,500 houses, social housing units, that is, will be completed in uh, the next, what is it, six weeks? No, what I'm saying to you is since, since in the last six months, I only have the completion figures mm. for, the, for the first six and a half months. Mm. So my, for my time with social housing as well, right. the delivery generally happens, to be honest with you, in the last quarter. So I, I'm quite confident mm. I'm talking to local authorities and I'm seeing the, what's on site. Okay, but I, 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 in I, about six weeks when we get to the Christmas holidays and that, do you believe uh, that we'll see a figure that exceeds 9,000, given that uh, we're well under half of that, uh, yeah, according sure. to the latest data, which is for the first six months? Months of the year, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so to make, yeah, yeah I, I accept what you're saying, but what, my, what I'm saying is the data you have is for six months. So, what we're saying is in the second six months, mm. there should be 6,000 houses completed. They're all on site, mm. uh, they're all happening today. I see some of the sites myself, there's more houses being opened and deleted next week for me to the council. So, there's a lot happening there. And, and I'm, I'm confident from what I've been told from local authorities that I track the figures, track the sites, that you know, we should be sitting here talking to you in January. With mm. a delivery of over nine thousand houses, and I and the fact that they're on site, I hope that happens. Okay, but, and, and, and Michael, what's mm. just as important? But you, you have this figure of you site. have this figure of two thousand, nearly three thousand social housing units for the first six months of uh, the year. Um, the Social Democrats are, are saying it's just one thousand seven hundred sixty-five. Uh, have they the wrong figures? Well, well, to be honest, Michael, I'm going to work with the Department of Housing. I, I was in that department right. for a number of years. Okay. They're not there now. I've checked the figures for them because I still have a strong interest in housing because it's a mm. massive issue for all of us. And the figures they have given me uh, very clearly say just under 3,000 houses uh, in the first six months of this year. And from my experience, I know that the majority of social housing come in the second six months. Mm. So based on what's on site, I expect us to be able to say to you in January that 9,000 social housing homes are delivered. That's the target. Mm. The money is set aside to deliver it. 
Uh, we know that because of COVID in the previous year, 2021, there was delays. But I think the system was back on track, back up and running. And what's important mm. is that and we will they, will they be that. Will there be newly built social housing units or will the department be competing with first-time buyers and others buying up uh, already existing housing stock uh, and using them as social housing? Well, the, the aim and the majority of social housing delivery, I mean, in the, in the early years when there was vacant sites or unfinished sites, we did a combination of new builds and purchase uh, order. OK, but, but the, so, the target, so, so, the target in the housing for all was new builds, 9,000. Yeah. And when you talk about close to 3,000, are you talking about 3,000 new builds? Yeah, so to finish the point, Michael, I, I was saying to you, in the earlier years of housing delivery, we combined the two, the, 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 the target for the last couple of years was to have new bills directly built through local authorities and that's what I'm being told by that the housing okay. department is yeah. on track and okay. now we have to yeah. work with that. Now, in, and that's then, separate to that then you have the VISE programme which we did see uh, bringing back 10,000 houses up to 2020 and since that 6,000. So that would be old local authority houses being brought back into the system. That's an ongoing programme of works as well. The other area, Michael, for the, for the major progress that has to be made, like we talk about social housing, affordable housing and cost rental. We need to see major increase in the delivery of affordable housing and cost rental properties. The targets there uh, are to, to reach 5,000 next year. That's what we want to see happen because that, that, that's an important delivery which is coming on stream, along with the private housing. So, you know, we need to be in a position of delivering 33,000, 34,000 houses a year. Are we on track for that? Based on this year's figures looking into next year, I believe mm. we are. Is uh, that in itself really, enough, though? Uh, I mean, others would suggest it should be forty to 50,000 units a year. So, so just to be clear on that, I, I have a view that we want to have a sustainable construction sector. It would be lovely to magic up uh, once off 60,000 houses for one year to give us that jump that we, we'd love to have. But that's not sustainable for, for people who are investing their career in construction, that they have a job every year for the next 20 or 30 years. A big part of our work was to repair a damaged construction sector from 2008, 2009, to make it a, a go-to place again. And that means having sustainable housing delivery targets every year for 20 years plus, that you know it's, you'll always have a job in construction. And that's what we've managed to achieve now it is sustainable, and 33, 34,000 houses is a reasonable target. I think where we can have a, a quick win in terms of extra mm. delivery is around vacancy. So there are a high, high number of vacant houses out there, and there, there has to be a redoubling of our efforts now to bring those vacant properties back into use. There's numerous schemes there that can assist anybody that wants to take on the vacant property, but we need to drive that on, because that will give us the extra houses we need now to plug that gap quickly while you wait for the new houses to come on stream. And to me, that's what we need to... I think everybody needs to focus on this now in a response to housing, but also in a response to, mm. to Ukraine families coming in here as well. That's where the quick... OK, the uh, and the hope will be that you're right and that that target of 9,000 new build social housing units will be achieved by the year's end as to what impact that will have. Uh, well, time will tell, but as you say, you'd need uh, that uh, and that many times over to tackle the challenge. But at the moment, uh, as things stand, according to the figures you have from the department and figures others have been supplied with, we're way behind the target. Uh, and hopefully that can be made up in the coming weeks uh, and indeed the months just gone by that are not included in that data. But we're also behind, not just in social housing units, in cost rental homes uh, and indeed to deliverable, affordable purchase homes. 
and, and that's what I was saying, Michael, we need to deliver more affordable housing and cost rentals. For, what's important is that the projects are underway. I think everybody knows the impact on construction uh, over the last couple of years coming from COVID and the supply chain difficulties because of Ukraine, energy prices, has had an impact. Uh, and that has you know, affected some of these sites. But mm. we need to have more sites open, more activity. And that's why I'm asking you to look into what's coming through on site for next year as well. So okay. I'm confident that we're in a good place for next year. I'd like you, Mike. Well, we have to put trust in that. I mean, we're talking about a target of 4,100 affordable homes and 300 delivered. Correct. And the affordable homes for next year is the target of, of, of 5,000. Um, and that's, that's the figure we need to get to. Uh, and that's a but combination. It, but if we get right. 300 out of 4,000, what does that mean? Uh, does it mean we'll get 5,000 next year if we can't get the 4,000 this year? Yeah, well my, well, my understanding on the affordable housing is that it's mainly concentrated on building up to the 5,000 next year and years after. Mm. The affordable housing schemes are, are kind of, uh, they're in play and the legislation has changed over the last year. There's a number of different opportunities to do that. But I think that's, again, an area that there's a new concentration on building on the success of the social housing build programme. Uh, but we're not at the level it should be at. I, I agree mm. to Michael, and we need to push on with that. Uh, as well as avail of the other schemes which assist with affordability, which we do see some great success. And one figure that I, that I think is a, is, a, is a good result is that 35,000 people have managed to buy a house using the Help to Buy scheme. To me, that's been a good success because that was an enabler to make sure there was appropriate housing being built for that category of people, mm. starter homes. And we first discussed this, Michael, I think about five or six years yeah. ago. There was very few first-time starter homes being built. And that changed that. And that's 35,000 people that are in a house today yeah. they own. Landlords. So, so there, there are some successes here and we need to find more wins. And, and well, I think that, uh, as we've discussed before, the theory is, is that those people would have bought homes anyway. They may have bought smaller no, homes. They may have bought smaller homes, but they would have bought homes no, anyway. No, sorry, Michael. This is, this is what's been missed by, by most people when they analyse this. The reason that scheme was started was because the, the, the construction sector were not building the starter homes because they didn't have customers for them because mm. the customers couldn't get a mortgage. The Help to Buy scheme changed that because it gave you your tax back to have a deposit so it meant you could buy a house. Well, that perhaps you could buy one of these houses build. that landlords are selling uh, and they seem to be moving out of the market. The government was told uh, that uh, if it didn't help landlords in the budget that people would sell up. Uh, Threshold is reporting today that they're receiving one call every 20 minutes from private renters who are facing eviction. Mm. And that's why the the... the the the, the doll passed in, in a couple of, two weeks ago the legislation to prevent uh, evictions for the next up to the end of March to give us a chance to, to be able to, to deal with this with the emergency situation in relation to the cost of living and again Michael the local authorities have been given the resources uh, to deal with landlords who, who want to leave if the tenants in there um, that are being paid for through local authorities mm-hmm. that they can buy those houses to keep people at home that's something I've, I've been advocating for for years I wish local authorities would do more of that they can do that the majority of landlords that I talk to who, who are leaving, and they're leaving for different reasons, uh, are, are, are prepared to sit down with local authorities to come to an arrangement when the tenants in situ, and, and that's appropriate. I agree with you. I wish we had more landlords staying in the market. Mm. Uh, but for different reasons, many of them are leaving um, to do with the complications and the rules around having tenants, and that's to protect everybody. Um, but it does make, make it a little bit more difficult for landlords. Yeah. But also the tax system, they don't believe, uh, reflects what you know makes it work mm. there. Why? Uh, and they had fa- they had false hope, as it turns out, uh, 
before budget was, day. There, was, there uh, were some changes in, in the budget, but uh, I, I think, no, I think there, were, there, were, yeah. there were there were there were nothing really. Uh, there was nothing really for existing landlords. No, the uh, point I was going to make, Michael. I do think that we need to do more to keep landlords in this space. Well, the landlords were, were, were the existing landlords were promised that some, or they were led to believe. They would tell you they were led to believe that something would happen in the budget, uh, and nothing happened. Mm. Uh, you, you, you mentioned Ukrainians, uh, Minister, and uh, I think there's close to sixty thousand Ukrainians uh, in the country at the moment, uh, and uh, those. Uh, who are fleeing war are being advised now not to come to this country because they could end up on the streets. Yeah, so to, to, to be very clear, there, there, I mean, the society as a whole and, and the Irish people have responded extremely well that there are now close to 60,000 Ukrainians li- living in Ireland. Uh, in very most cases, it's temporary arrangements in terms of accommodation, which we have to work on to become more permanent. About 12,000 of those Ukrainians are now in our schools or education system. Quite a number are now coming through control level education. So great integration there from an education point of view. There's about 12, 13,000 have now taken up jobs uh, in, in many most needed sectors. So again, positive integration there as well. So overall, there's been a lot of success uh, in taking in Ukrainian families from a difficult time from their perspective and integrating them into Ireland. But now we need to redouble our efforts because of what's happening in Ukraine and because of Putin's approach to this, we're going to see more and more people continuing to be, to leave Ukraine and looking for assistance and accommodation in all our countries all over Europe. And we have to redouble our efforts now. Uh, and I recently sat down uh, with the Ukrainian Civil Society Forum, mm-hmm. which brings together all the agencies of this space, over 68 agencies, to work with them around what needs to happen now for phase two of this. Because originally the response was temporary, and you were, you were finding temporary accommodation through hotels, through tours accommodation, through pledges, uh, through old buildings are back in. But now it's it's obvious to me and to everybody that we ne- you have to put in place more long-term solutions now. And, and that means, again, going back out there to find more properties that can be turned into housing accommodation mm. uh, and, and shelter for U- Ukrainians coming in. But it's putting immense pressure on the system. But I think we, we have to do this, and it's right, and most people you talk to would say it is appropriate that, do we, that we do all we can to facilitate Ukrainian families. Who are but did we not know that at the end of February when Putin we, launches we, we, an attack? We did, and, and immediately that's why we've been able mm. to accommodate close to 60,000 people. Well, at, so the begi- we, at the beginning of March, we were told it could be as many as 100 or 200,000 people and we're not able to accommodate yeah, 60,000 so, so, so to be So to be clear, we, we've said we keep our doors open and look, there's been on a rare occasion some weeks that there's been a, there's been a, a temporary shortage for a day or two. People are generally found accommodation quite quickly thereafter. So I think we are, and we have managed to handle this reasonably well so far. You're not going to get perfection in more time. But now we have to recognise that the numbers are still high and will, will increase. And we have to plan for that. And we have been. And that's why the, the additional the off-site construction houses, they are now coming on stream and they'll be in use from January on as well. There'll be about, I think, about 800 of those houses in total and more to come afterwards as well. Again, another part of the solution. And you have to look into all our communities. And I think it's very important here that we recognise the community effort out there to find accommodation. Uh, and, and we need to, again, re-engage with our communities to find more available yeah. properties, more available houses and sites for, for temporary houses as well. And that's that's a difficult conversation okay. for everybody, in, but we have to do that and, and we have to make it happen. OK, uh, just uh, before we conclude, uh, Minister, uh, do you wish to comment on uh, the suggestion that uh, the Taunish is soon to be Taoiseach, your party leader, Leo Radker, uh, may go to hell? Ah, look, Michael, I, I think that's, it's a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a ridiculous comment we made, and I'm glad the Bishop of Kerry is dealing with that as well, and there's been a response overall that this was not appropriate, uh, and the Thomas is very clear on that, that, you know, he profoundly disagrees, and so do I with those comments. 
uh, and it's not acceptable. And I'm glad the Bishop uh, will, will deal with this, and, and rightly so. Okay, Minister, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Minister of State, Damien English, who's a Fine Gael TD for Mead West. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Just a, a couple of comments on WhatsApp so far to us uh, this morning. Michael, um, uh, I'm on uh, Meath's County Council housing list and I was told I'll be waiting eight to ten years uh, before I'll get somewhere to live. So stop contacting them. Uh, they'll contact me, I was told, in a few years' time when something might be available. That's a, a single male uh, in touch with us and somebody else says uh, that we should look after our own people first. Thank you if you have been in touch. Oh four one nine eight. 3-2000-086-810-658 for text or WhatsApp or email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, as I'm sure you're very much aware, there's a lot of concern for a nine-week-old baby girl who's in Temple Street Hospital after suffering serious head and body injuries in a way that appears to be unknown at this stage but there's been a number of arrests and this baby was taken to hospital on Tuesday by ambulance in County Loud. Let's speak uh, to LMFM reporter Simon Doyle. Uh, a very good morning to you Simon and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. This really is a, a shocking hospital for such a young infant to end up a, a, in hospital in a critical condition like this. I think people are, are very taken aback but there's scant detail isn't there on what happened to the child? Yes, good morning, Michael. Yeah, very scant detail in regards to the incident that happened at a location in County Louth on uh, September 13th uh, last. Uh, what we do know in terms of the arrests that have been made this week, a man and woman who are both aged in their 30s were arrested separately on Tuesday in relation to the alleged assault of a baby girl at her home in County Louth. Uh, she was just nine weeks old at the time of the incident on uh, September 13th. Uh, she continues to fight for her life, as you said, in Temple Street Children's Hospital over eight weeks on from suffering the uh, serious injuries. Her condition continues to be described as critical. Uh, in terms of those arrests that were made on Tuesday, uh, the couple were held uh, at Dundalk and Drogheda stations respectively under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. Uh, and it was believed the man was arrested a number of hours before the woman, uh, but it was confirmed last night that he's been released without charge with a file being prepared for the Director of Public Prosecutions. Okay. And uh, while we still await confirmation from Gardaí, it is believed that the woman does remain in custody at Strahada Garda Station this morning. OK. Uh, uh, why is it that the Gardaí are, are slow to give this information, do we know? We're not entirely sure. All we know from Gardaí at this time is that they're investigating the uh, the serious incident. Uh, like you said, there is uh, very little detail coming out at the moment except for her condition remaining critical and the arrests. Uh, of course, we're, like I said, we're waiting mm. uh, for confirmation that the woman uh, arrested is still in Garda custody. Um, but in the days, I suppose, that followed uh, from the child being admitted mm. to hospital, Gardaí in Drogheda, who are leading the investigation, uh, said that they were investigating investigating all the circumstances. Uh, it was understood at the time as well that family members uh, were expected to be interviewed and uh, it was also reported that the child had a number of bruises on her body which are being classified as suspicious mm. and the Child and Family Agency Tusla were also subsequently notified of the matter and they are liaising with Gardaí as part of their investigation. Yeah, I suppose uh, you'd forgive people for speculating uh, that it happens 
somewhere close to the Drogheda area because, as you say, the Gardaí and Drogheda are leading the investigation. Uh, but it does seem peculiar that that location hasn't been revealed to the public generally because usually in a, a circumstance like this, uh, the Gardaí would appeal for information. So I, I take it that they're quite confident about the way that they're conducting this investigation and that there are people that they're speaking to, not just this man and woman who were interviewed in Drogheda and Dundalk respectively, uh, but perhaps uh, wider family members uh, and indeed neighbours and that sort of thing. Well, yes, it's very hard to, I suppose, speculate on uh, why the location in County Louth hasn't been released. Uh, like I was saying, all, all we know is that Drogheda Gardaí are leading the mm-hmm. investigation and family members uh, as to who that uh, is or, or what extent or how uh, far reaching uh, those interviews with family members are. It still remains very unclear at this time. Okay, uh, we are hearing from some listeners uh, about uh, the location. Uh, Perhaps uh, we'll get confirmation of that before we broadcast it. Uh, But somebody in touch with us saying that people like that should not be allowed to have children uh, if uh, they uh, are in contact with children or if they do something like that to a child, that they should be locked up and uh, the key should be thrown away as a result. There'll be a lot more information on this. But there is concern for the child. And as you say, uh, she's fighting for her life at the moment in Temple Street. Very much so, yeah. Eight weeks eight weeks on and and still the condition is being described as critical so those those injuries were, were very serious there has been uh, I suppose uh, speculation and reports as to what exactly happened uh, on uh, September 13th at that location in County Louth but I suppose all we know Michael is that it is very serious and uh, the, the baby who was just nine weeks old yeah. at the time is continuing to fight for her life Dreadful story uh, and hopefully uh, that uh, child will pull through and recover Simon thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning uh, that's LMFM reporter Simon Doyle Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the retired priest in Kerry, Father Sean Sheehy, who has caused outrage by suggesting that gay people will go to hell if they don't repent for their sins, is standing over his comments. And Father Sheehy says he's not making it up. And I was quoting uh, the book of Ezekiel, you know, where Ezekiel says, uh, I mean, where God reveals to Ezekiel, he said, if you see somebody doing wrong and you say nothing and they die in their sin, then you would be held responsible for, for their sin. I mean, that, that to me is, is, is frightening, but that's the reality. Also, I was quoting the spiritual um, uh, uh, work of mercy, which says you must admonish the sinner. And, and I mean, you don't admonish the sinner out of a sense of superiority complex, but out of a sense of love, because nobody wants anybody to go to hell. Mm. But if if people don't realize how grave the sins are that they may be doing themselves or maybe supporting others doing, then my God, the day they die, I mean, it'll be too late. Right, that's uh, Father Sean Sheehan speaking uh, to uh, Jerry O'Sullivan on Radio Kerry's Kerry Today program yesterday, and uh, it's not just. Uh, gay people who will go to hell. In fact, uh, people who enable uh, gay relationships, politicians, uh, but not just politicians who (laughs) enable gay relationships, but all sorts of immorality in the priest's view uh, who may end up in the same situation. Yeah, I said said that that sinfulness actually is enshrined in legislation. And there, of course, as I I said also, that I refer there to abortion, to same-sex marriage, and so on. Totally contrary to the scriptures and the teaching of the church. Mm. And so because those things are legislated, 
And sadly, a lot of people think that because there's no law against it, it must be okay. And that's not true, of course. Right, that's uh, Father Sean Sheehy. As I say, he was speaking to Radio Kerry, Kerry's Today programme yesterday. Uh, and we're going to hear from uh, the presenter now, Jerry O'Sullivan, and this question that he put to the priest. Do you think that our politicians... Uh, the ones who legislate for things like same-sex marriage, um, some of them are, are openly gay, the, the, the soon-to-be Taoiseach again, um, Leo Varadkar, do you think that they're going to hell for what they've done? Absolutely. If they, if they don't repent of their sin and seek uh, forgiveness, absolutely. Absolutely. Because what they're doing is contrary, first of all, to the law of nature. Secondly, and more importantly, it's contrary to the law of God. When you go against God, who's the author of life, you're actually going against life itself. Let's speak uh, to Adam Higgins, political correspondent with the Irish Sun. Uh, Very good morning to you, Adam, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. This is Front Page News today, uh, uh, and it's a story that continues uh, to get a a lot of traction, particularly, uh, I think, uh, because of the direct reference there to the Tánis of Radcliffe. Yes, 100%. And I'm conscious when we're having uh, a debate like this, and I think it's important to have these sort of debates, that we have to be respectful of people's religious views. But I think this kind of oversteps the boundary a bit. And, and there was a reaction from the Tarnish yesterday, in particular to um, the, uh, the priest's comments there, the last uh, clip you just played. And I'll just read out the Tarnish uh, response mm. in full. It's only very short. So a spokesman for the Tarnish told us, that he profoundly disagrees with Father Sheehy's views. However, he respects his right to express his religious beliefs freely. The Tanishtu does not believe that gay people will go to hell for who they are, nor does he believe that any man or woman can make such a judgment. And he then quotes uh, Pope Francis by saying, who are we to judge? And then he also quotes the Bible by saying, judge not lest you be judged, we are all God's children. And that's the response from the Tanishtu yesterday. There was widespread response across the cabinet then for him, the Taoiseach, um, um, uh, backing up the, the Tarnished's views there and then also the Minister of Foreign Affairs Simon Coveney and the Social Protection Minister Heather Humphrey both saying that these comments were unacceptable. Mm. Uh, to non-Catholics perhaps uh, but is he not expressing a Catholic viewpoint? Well he is but I, I think it's also important to point out that he's now been banned from saying Mass in um, Listowel and the Bishop of Kerry has also condemned these comments and said that they do not reflect the Christian viewpoint. So, I mean, there's, there's colliding views there within the church if this is what Father Sheehy believes and then the Bishop uh, of Kerry, arguably his boss in, in the, the religious order, saying that this is not a reflection on the Christian uh, order. Mm. Uh, I think uh, Mary McLeese has uh, been very vocal uh, as a staunch Catholic herself of uh, the church's perspective uh, of uh, those who are in same-sex relationships and uh, the terminology that's used describing people as being intrinsically evil. Mm. And I think that's something that really we need to move away from, this whole idea of evil and, and the talk of people going to hell for being who they are. It was it's a very difficult thing for, to get your mind around, and I can understand how some people will have their, their religious views and, 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 and everything, and we're a very Catholic country, and I think that's probably a good thing. But this is the side of Catholicism that I think needs to be left in the past. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure that we are that uh, 
Catholic a country. I think the next census uh, will be very interesting in that respect. I think uh, quite often people have uh, put their names down on the census or, or declared themselves uh, as uh, Catholics uh, because that has always been the thing to do and about 80% of the population would uh, claim to be Catholic uh, but I think Father Sheehy would say if you are truly Catholic you'd agree with me. You wouldn't be saying things like uh, the things that Adam Higgins is saying on the radio this morning. Yeah, and I can understand that argument, but this is a part of Catholicism that I think a lot of people don't agree with. And I think it's fair to say yeah, the next census will show that, you know, a lot of people were not the say overly majority Catholic that we used to be and we're not kind of back to that, you know, everybody doesn't go to Mass. But I think just because you don't go to Mass on a weekend doesn't mean you're not religious. And I think a lot of people might still find solace in parts of the Catholic Church. I mean, for example, things like how um, the Church handles funerals and things like that can be very helpful to people. And there's a lot in the Church that I think we we need and we rely on, but it has to change with society. And I think this is an ancient part of the Catholic Church mm. that really needs changing. I think a, a, a lot of uh, gay people will be very offended uh, by what Father Sheehy said, uh, because in that interview yesterday on Radio Kerry, he was suggesting that a lot of people aren't born gay. Maybe 3%, I think he said, of those who say they are gay were born gay, biologically gay, uh, but the rest were sinners. And because they had this inclination to sin, uh, they were acting out gay lives. Uh, And that's why conversion therapy works. He he spoke about his work in the United States where they were able to cure people of homosexuality. And I think that background in the United States is something that probably backs up a lot of these views. He was originally, um, he, he has a background there in Louisiana, in the U.S., deep south. Um, and look, bringing up anything to do with conversion therapy, in, in my opinion, is a ridiculous and backwards way to go. And it's something that really I think the government, and I think they are considering banning it if it's not banned already. Conversion therapy. Yeah, I would have yeah. thought. God, yeah, I would have thought that it was banned. Uh, it really is a, a, a very uh, odd thing to suggest to people that you're not gay. It's like saying you're not heterosexual or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, there was a, a very strong reaction, uh, obviously at the mass. Uh, uh, some thirty people walked out uh, as well, uh, and this has led to. This conversation, uh, which could lead to even greater change in this country, because we've changed so dramatically in the last 40 years as a society. We have indeed. And I think really fair play to the 30 people that got up and walked out, because that's not really an easy thing to do in the middle of a mass in your local community when, you know, people are going to be looking at you. So I think well done to those people that got up and left. And I think you're right, the church does need to move here. And But to be honest, it's, it's, I think it, it, we shouldn't really tear the whole church with this one priest's comments because this is a priest who's been involved in controversy in the past and mm. I don't know whether you know he represents the entire church in the way that he can be made out when he makes the headlines like today. Yeah, I, I wonder, to be honest with you, Adam, because, uh, I mean, he's expressing the church's teachings and I think some people are saying well why, why is he being reprimanded by the bishop if that's the church's teachings mm-hmm. uh, because, because it's against the code of the Catholic Church to be a practicing homosexual in the same way you shouldn't be using contraception to be a Catholic and these are things that the Pope will say and will not change I mean there's no change anytime soon coming in the church in respect of these moral codes 
Yes, and, and one interesting point I saw raised by a TD yesterday was that these, as you pointed out, are the, the, say part of the views of the Catholic Church and part of the teaching of the Catholic Church, and yet the vast majority of schools uh, follow the ethos of the Catholic Church in Ireland. And he raised the question, does this whole debate bring up the point, do we need to remove um, religion from our uh, school system? And I think it's an interesting debate and one worth having. Okay, Adam, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. As I say, it's front page news in the Irish Sun today. Adam Higgins is uh, the political correspondent for the Irish Sun, writing about church and state this morning. We'd like to hear from you, as always. 0419832000 if you want to ring. WhatsApp or text 0868106588 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some anger on the phones today about what Father Sheehy was saying about gay people burning in hell. Uh, one caller on WhatsApp saying, does that mean that hell is going to be full of priests and Christian brothers? A similar WhatsApp message from another person who says a lot of priests should go to hell for the things that they have done. That's from Anne. Thanks for your uh, WhatsApp message. Anne, a text then from from somebody who says, who the hell does the Catholic Church think they are to condemn anybody when they're full of gay priests and sex offenders? They're the one who will be going to hell. Uh, somebody else, though, on the other hand, says if something was a, a sin 40 years ago, it's still a sin today. Uh, thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us about that. 0419832000, our phone number WhatsApp or text 0868106588. Email michael at lmfm.ie. And a comment from Eamon uh, on housing saying, Would it not make sense to build two bedroom houses with no maintenance for older people uh, and let them move into it and free them up, free their houses, their three, four bedroom houses up uh, because they're too big for them? Uh, Possibly would suit some people, Eamon. Uh, may not suit some others, and therein may lie the problem. Thank you, though, for your text to the programme. Now, let's uh, go back uh, to the concern uh, that there is, and uh, it is a serious concern, obviously, coming into Christmas uh, about turkeys and turkey sales uh, because of avian flu. Amy Ford is the acting news editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. A very good morning to you, Amy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. All, all commercial flocks have to be locked up up to be housed from Monday onwards. Uh, is it um, felt that that will be enough to stop this from spreading into commercial flocks? Yeah, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having thanks for having me on. Look, as you said there, from, from next Monday, all, all poultry will have to be housed across the country until further notice. And that means, uh, you know, any any major poultry keepers that have flocks outside, as well as anyone keeping a few chickens in uh, their backyard, essentially. Um, and that's because the department has issued a housing order to prevent poultry from coming into contact with wild birds, which may have which may be carrying bird flu. Now, we've had a few cases of bird flu in wild birds so far in, in Ireland this year. Um, we've had none in, in poultry flocks um, to date, thank God, so there's nothing on that front yet. Um, but in other countries, it's really become an issue, like in the UK and other countries in continental Europe. They've been forced to cull millions of birds in attempts to contain um, this highly pathogenic strain of bird mm. flu, essentially. And two cases of this pathogenic bird flu have been reported in captive bird flocks in Ireland in coastal areas of Dublin and Wicklow. So they're not poultry flocks. They're not chi- um, chickens or turkeys that we might have over Christmas, essentially. Um, 
Poultry farmers are being advised to take biosecurity measures to limit the risk of disease transmission from their wild from the wild bird populations to their flock. And again, that goes for, for anyone keeping backyard flocks as well. Like you don't want it mm. to get in. No, you don't. Well, if it does get in, you've uh, to destroy the whole flock, don't you? Yeah, that's correct. Mm. And I, I suppose if you asked a question there around coming up to Christmas. At this minute in time, look, there's there's no risk to our Christmas dinners, Michael, mm. um, at this minute in time anyways. And you, the hope is that this, this uh, housing order will essentially quell those fears that there there could be a shortage of turkeys. Now, IFA Poultry Chair Nigel Sweetman, Sweetnam even, he told the journal this week that um, reports from around the country suggest that the number of turkeys available to retailers is lower this year um, compared to others. And he said that's because many smaller growers had opted out of in turkeys due to rise in feed and electricity costs stating that the numbers of birds available um, had the potential to, cre- to decrease even further if colds are necessary in turkey flocks in the UK so I suppose it's like everything else especially consumers ourselves not alone farmers like we're all facing rising um, gas and electricity costs and, and those costs are, are reflected at farm level as well and that's where that knockoff is coming from and if I could just say Michael mm-hmm. last year um, you know we've had housing orders down through the years it's not, a, yep. it's not an uncommon occurrence shall we say but last year 200,000 birds um, between November and ja- the end of January of this year um, basically um, had to be culled due to due to bird flu getting into the flock so if it gets yeah. in look it is quite serious but at this minute in time there's no need to worry about what we'll be eating on, on Christmas Day and in those days around the end of December Okay and uh, what risk is there to public health if any if you eat a turkey that had the virus or if you eat a boiled egg that came from from uh, hen uh, that had avian flu. Yeah, so biosecurity obviously is, is the, the biological security in and around farms and on poultry farms especially it's taken very serious because as you can imagine if something gets in everything could possibly get it and that's why those flocks last year were essentially wiped out. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
out and that there was 200,000 birds um, culled essentially. There is no risk to human health um, from from these, um, from bird flu. Um, it's not something that has come, we've come across before ever um, of, of um, birds with bird flu going into the food chain. It's not something that has ever come, we've ever come across. Um, so it's, it's not a, a human health issue at all. Okay, there is a concern uh, that uh, whilst they're introducing or they've already introduced such a, an order in the UK, it doesn't apply in the north. Uh, yeah, the, it's 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 a devolved issue, obviously, in the north, um, and I'm sure they'll they'll take their own. Um their own steps in, in due course as well um, sometimes in, we can be ahead of uh, Northern Ireland sometimes they can be ahead of us um, when it comes to um, housing orders and so on and I'm sure they'll take they'll take action in due course if it becomes um, as much of an issue as it is down here um, I must look up the figures for, for Northern Ireland but I don't have them to hand Michael mm-hmm. uh, If uh, the flu gets into a, a flock and the whole flock is destroyed is there any compensation for the farmers? So that depends on uh, this, the strain of bird flu as far as I'm aware and uh, highly pathogenic. I'm pretty sure it comes with compensation but that's something uh, I'd like I'd like to double check it without without committing to it fully mm-hmm. uh, Michael but usually depending on the strain there is compensation but if it's if it's not as high a strain um, there's sometimes isn't compensation it all depends on the strain and obviously what, what the department acts on. Okay as you say it's not the first housing order or not the first time that a housing order has been put in place uh, for flocks of poultry like this and they can go on for some time and that can have uh, some impact on on produce correct me if I'm wrong free range eggs uh, come from birds that have not been locked up uh, for eight weeks is it? Yeah it's it's in around that time period I think there's been derogations in the past that the, the birds that will or the, not a derogation but that the um, packaging that still says free range eggs when you're going in to do your shopping that there will be a stamp or a sticker on it to say that these birds have been housed or something along those lines um, they're obviously they have to be housed and that's something that is an animal health issue um, that that is housing them essentially so if, if if they are if they're kept free range essentially and there is bird flu in a housing order you know they're at risk of being infected so the best option is to is to put them inside so that they don't co- uh, contract the flu yeah i suppose one of uh, the things that this uh, flu does uh, is highlight uh, the amount of turkeys that we eat at uh, christmas uh, because of uh, the concern that there is uh, about uh, the turkey flock uh, but apparently they sell about a, a million turkeys over christmas that's a new figure for me. That's a great oh. headline for a future issue for me. <laughs> okay. um, but but yeah, no, it's sure look the demand of it. If you think about the population yeah. alone, um, and I'm sure some houses have have a, a massive turkeys or possibly two over Christmas in general. Um, the demand is 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 does be insatiable. Like I know um, there are alternatives, obviously in terms of, of of chicken or ham or beef. If you wanted to change things up a bit, mm. but it is a massive time of year, I suppose, and yeah. it's something that a lot of us look forward to is that massive plate of dinner uh, over over the Christmas yeah. Um, but yeah a million yeah. a million would probably sound about right OK yeah used to be goose at one stage and I'm sure there's some uh, spicy variations these days for that matter Amy yeah. uh, and Michael yeah. sorry mm. I, you just asked me about Northern Ireland and yeah. I just yeah. did a quick Google of it yeah. there so sure. from, since the 17th of October um, there's been an avian influenza prevention zone in place since since 12 o'clock on, on the 17th of October so that basically uh, puts a legal requirement on all bird keepers in, the, in Northern Ireland to follow strict biosecurity measures um, and again that's applies if whether you're keeping pet birds commercial flocks or a few birds in the backyard and um, so there is there is action being taken in Northern Ireland as well and obviously there are a lot of poultry flocks around the border area mm. um, and, and you know they're, they're all you know uh, birds don't see the border if that makes sense yeah. so um, all, all in the one 
Okay. And uh, those uh, who are farming poultry don't have to lock up their flocks until Monday, but I take it uh, that many farmers are doing that today. Yeah, yeah. The sooner sooner you can act, the better, I suppose, really. And that's to to give people time, I suppose, to get set up rather than declaring it from from midnight um, yesterday, if that makes sense, to get people set up whatever they need to have Mm. uh, in their their poultry houses to ensure birds uh, when they go in there that everything's there for them. Okay, Amy, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you very much. Amy Ford is uh, the acting news editor with uh, the Irish Farmers Journal. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, if ever you've had a a miscarriage, you'll know that it's not uncommon and uh, you won't be the first nor the last uh, to ever had had a miscarriage. Uh, The Labour Party is looking for better support for women who have had an early miscarriage uh, because if you or somebody you know has had a miscarriage you'll be very much uh, aware of how hard it can be uh, and uh, that you often suffer in silence. But now the Labour Party uh, in this new piece of legislation it is uh, proposing is suggesting that there should be up to 20 days leave uh, available for women who are working if they have undergone an early miscarriage. Let's speak uh, to the Labour Party leader, Ivana Bakic, who's on the line, and a uh, very good morning to you. And uh, I think uh, the idea of paid leave for a miscarriage uh, may seem alien to some people. We already do have paid leave for miscarriage, but if any any woman miscarries after 24 weeks, uh, then she's entitled to full maternity leave. So it's already built into our law. What we don't have to, uh, so far is any recognition of early miscarriage in law. So if a woman miscarries before six months, before 24 weeks, or if, the, or if it's stillbirth, if the baby is less than 500 grams, there's no entitlement to maternity leave or to any specifically and some years ago now, the Irish National Teachers Organisation, the INTO, and my colleague Alison Gilliland there uh, came to me to say that they had done a survey of teachers, and of course we've m- you know many uh, women working in the uh, primary teachers who had come to their union to say that they mm. had experienced early miscarriage and hadn't been able to speak about it within their workplace. Their principal hadn't been able to seek specific time off uh, to deal with the both the physical and indeed the you know the mental the, the trauma or the grief as a result of early miscarriage. So you know they'd often taken annual leave or sick leave. Mm. But what the INTO sought from me was a commitment that I would bring forward legislation to support women experiencing early miscarriage before 24 weeks uh, and specifically to give an entitlement to paid leave. Now, it wouldn't oblige any woman, of course, to come forward and disclose to her yeah, employer. It's a very private matter, would, yeah. Yeah, it's a very, it, and for many women, they prefer to keep it that way. But equally, you know, there is a sense that, that, that we should be challenging the culture of silence or the taboo around early mm. miscarriage and indeed around fertility. And, you know, since I published the bill and since we brought it forward in the Shannon last Last year, I've received so many calls from women around, and indeed from their male partners around yeah. the country saying that they would they would have really benefited from this leave. They would really appreciate it. And I should say, I suppose, finally, Michael, that, mm. of course, you know, we, we did look elsewhere. And in New Zealand, uh, this sort of leave has already been introduced and has been taken up, for, you know, very effectively. Our, our yeah. bill would provide for up to 20 days leave, but it would be medically certified. So not everyone would need that extent. Mm. And it would all... It, 
provide up to 20 days for early miscarriage, but it would also provide for up to 10 days leave where people need time off to undergo, for example, IVF treatment or other fertility treatment in the workplace. Because again, yeah. this is often a silent struggle for many individuals and couples and, uh, and you know, again, a taboo around discussing yeah. fertility issues. And yet we know around one in six couples that experience fertility issues, around 14,000 women every year in Ireland mm. experience a miscarriage. So we do need well, to... I, I suppose most women who plan a, a family will at some stage experience a, a miscarriage. Uh, and you talked about grief and for a lot of people, it's like a death in the family. Uh, but it's one that goes unspoken. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard so many absolutely heartbreaking stories from women and from couples where they describe the bereavement of, you know, having planned a very much wanted pregnancy and uh, then experiencing a miscarriage. You know, six months is very late in pregnancy to be experiencing miscarriage. If you experience miscarriage at four or five months, it can be desperately traumatic for people. And there is currently no mm. statutory recognition of this. Now, we've called on government to bring forward um, bring forward our proposals in their own work-life balance bill and indeed it's very welcome that they're bringing forward proposals to provide for domestic violence leave in the work-life balance bill but they could equally include our provisions on reproductive health leave as we're calling it leave for mm. early miscarriage or IVF treatment and we uh, and I do think they should do that we've called on them to do that in fact they didn't oppose our labour bill when we brought it forward in the Shannon last year but we've just seen no sense of urgency from them about actually bringing it into law and my colleagues Marie Sherlock and Rebecca Moynihan who are leading on it now in the Shannon, now that I'm at the doll. Mm. You know, they've been pushing government on it. They brought it back again to the Shannon this year in January. And again, the government spoke very positively about, well, government senators spoke very positively about the bill. So we just want to see it really yeah. brought into law. OK, uh, what have employers said about it? Uh, because uh, it's effectively up to four weeks off. Well, I think most employers recognise that uh, that in fact many employees are already taking time off to deal with early miscarriage and to deal with, say, with physical and mental mm. effects, but they're just not taking it as uh, maternity leave. So for many teachers, and again, the INTO survey was very helpful in that regard, many teachers took annual leave or they took sick leave rather than because they didn't have any other option. So it's not that it would be up to 20 days extra necessarily because for many women and indeed employees, they have to take this time off anyway to deal with the, the, the aftermath, mm. the effects. But it's just that it's not disclosed as uh, reproductive health leave. And I suppose the other thing to say is that we've also heard from employers who are already providing compassionate leave in these sort of circumstances. And I think we would welcome a statutory recognition mm. of this kind. But of course, the leave, the, the, the bill would not oblige anyone to take this leave and it would require medical certification. That's the nature of it. OK, leave. but there would be uh, leave uh, that uh, people would be entitled to after a, a miscarriage, uh, which would be uh, normal sick days, wouldn't it? Uh, I mean, there's medical procedures that quite often uh, need to follow a, a miscarriage, whether it's a, a, a DNC or, or whatever the case may be. Well, that's right. But I suppose, you know, Michael, again, it's about changing the culture. You know, mm. it wasn't that long ago that maternity leave was regarded as, you know, the pregnancy was yeah. almost regarded mm. as a sickness in, in employment law. Yeah. And we've happily, we've moved beyond that to recognise that maternity and pregnancy and indeed needing time off for breastfeeding, that all of these are far from sickness. These are very much a natural part of, 
of our, our of reproduction for women and we need to ensure that there's recognition in the workplace that women will have specific, specified and specific time off for mm. maternity for breastfeeding. So this is just part of that. It's recognising that early miscarriage is another part of that cycle and that we do need to see a recognition of it and as I say a breaking of the culture of silence, mm. the taboo around discussing it. There's been some very welcome media focus, I must say mm. that, on mm. early miscarriage. We've seen some very high profile individuals like Sheila Shaga really mm. courageously speaking out about their own experiences of miscarriage and yeah. about the difficulty of dealing with that. So I do think we're moving towards a situation where it is much more uh, accepted to speak about it, which is very welcome, and indeed that you know that, that there's no longer any sort of taboo. But we mm. haven't yet got the recognition in the workplace, and yeah. you know it, 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 it would, I think, be very positive to mm. give employees the option of disclosing to their employees that this yeah. is why they're taking. Mm. And not just to speak about it, but to speak about it openly and honestly, and to describe your feelings. Uh, I mean, you spoke about the grief uh, and how uh, it uh, feels like a, a death in uh, the family to some people. Uh, but uh, again, to look at it. In, in that context, to take up to 20 days off uh, would be a, a very long period of absence from work following the death in, in a family, maybe for a, a spouse or a child. Uh, but I think if you lose a, a parent or, or someone uh, as close as that in the family, uh, most people would be expected to take no more than a week off. Well, again, you know, we're not talking about a, uh, other types of leave. This is very much, as you'd say in law, you know, it's yeah. of its own kind, sui mm. generis. It is unique. Uh, there, uh, we've already got provision in our law for full maternity leave for a woman who experiences miscarriage or stillbirth after 24 weeks of pregnancy. So, you know, it's not that 20 days would be required or indeed sought in every case, far from it, particularly for a very early miscarriage. But certainly if, if a woman miscarries in the fifth month, in 20 weeks, at 21 weeks, currently there's no specific entitlement and really that's the scenario where they will need she will need time off to recover physically as much as mm. anything else it's mm. very different to as you say the sort of bereavement leave for a death in the family which clearly many employers do provide for and which we have you know called the force majeure leave where there's a, an, an emergency so so mm. there are there is recognition of that i think what we need to see is specific recognition yeah. of the need for leave in this specific and, and unique circumstance of early miscarriage mm. and you know we look at new zealand we see jacinda ardern's government there having introduced this along with uh, what they call family violence leave or domestic violence leave and we see the take up there you know very positive and we see really i suppose again uh, it, it also being a way to challenge a culture of secrecy of silence mm. and enabling people to come up to speak out about their experience and in the case of those undergoing domestic violence of course it's also providing very important support so mm. that's that's you know really positive yeah. but mm. certainly we would like to see government at least making some move towards incorporating our provisions okay. in their work life would, would, would you be concerned at all about the potential for an unintended negative consequence which is that it, it may lead to what is uh, discri- discrimination already for young women seeking uh, employment uh, because I, I think it's true to say that some employers will look at two candidates and say the young woman uh, may be uh, planning a, a family uh, and needs maternity leave, the young man won't be in such a, a circumstance. Uh, and if you add this uh, to that consideration that an employer has looking at two different people, uh, could it lead to further discrimination? Well, I think every time there's been any advance in our law on maternity leave or breastfeeding leave, we've seen that argument being used. Will this not lead to discrimination against women? And I think happily our workplace and indeed our society culture has moved on to 
point where we recognise that we have to accommodate, for all of our sake, mm. for future generations' sake, we have mm. to accommodate parenting and parenting responsibilities in the workplace. And yeah. I think the answer and we do that we, point, we do in principle, but the point I'm putting to you is that in practice it's not the case, and that employers will look at the practicalities of taking someone on, and if she is going to be off on maternity leave, and that's what's happening at the moment, I believe, maybe not across the board, but it certainly does happen. And well, this, it, this, it, this could compound clear, that. Well, to be clear, that would be unlawful discrimination. Oh, well, I know that. And so, that's why, you know, and that's why yeah. it's unspoken. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that happen in the world that we don't talk about openly. Yeah, exactly that. But I think the answer to that point is really to, again, to recognise that our culture is changing, that we do happily now have provision in law for paternity leave too. So equally an employer looking at a young man will be conscious that this is somebody who may be taking paternity leave or indeed parental leave or parent leave. So we do, and it's very welcome, we do have much greater provision now for uh, fathers to take leave in the workplace. And I think the answer and what we see you know, in other countries is uh, fathers getting more recognition in the workplace so that it's no longer just a given that it's only women who will be taking leave for parenting. So, so far we've spoken about women, particularly mm. in this, in, in the context of our bill, because it yeah. does deal with early miscarriage. But our bill also would provide, mm. <coughs> excuse me, for male employees to take time off where they need, for example, to undergo IVF treatment in the workplace. So I think, you know, the, the answer is to ensure that there is more equal sharing of leave uh, to, to, um, to take on parenting roles for both women and men, while, while reinforcing, I think, the growing social rec- recognition that parenting is something that society needs to support for all of our interests. It's not just a woman's responsibility or a woman's role. And I do think very few employers would have that view anymore that you describe. I mean, I think, you know, let's be fair to employers, you know, most people recognise now that not only is it illegal to discriminate, but it's, of course, completely completely unethical. And indeed, you know, at a time when we do have nearly full employment, any employers I'm speaking to tell me the difficulty they're having is recruitment and retention. And therefore, they're offering much better terms and conditions conditions in most cases than would be legally required. So we're seeing employers offering uh, you know, additional parent leave, additional annual leave uh, and so on in many cases. So I think, you know, I don't think that's a real prospect. And as I say, it's often it's been used as an argument over the years. Any time mm. there's been any, any attempt to improve upon provision for maternity mm. entitlement. Yeah, but that's because it's uh, the employer who would end up paying for it, isn't it? Well, the state, of course, has a role. I mean, the state uh, pays the statutory maternity benefit, and the employer doesn't. Many employers do top up, but many don't as well. So, I mean, you know, clearly there is a cost, of course, to the employer in terms of taking on somebody else for full maternity leave. But this is this is a very different mm. scenario. Our bill is simply providing for a much shorter term leave. Okay, very good. We leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you, Michael. That's the leader of uh, the Labour Party, Ivana Backage. And our thanks too to the listener who's been WhatsApping us today to say, Michael, you need to rethink that statement that a, a miscarriage is like a death in uh, the family. Our caller says it is a death in uh, the family. It's uh, the loss of a child. And our caller says that they're speaking from experience multiple times uh, they've lost a child. Thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to contact us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the government is today publishing a draft residential zoned land tax map 
for every county in the country. These uh, draft maps are being compiled by each of uh, the local county councils and uh, they want uh, submissions on land uh, that is zoned residential by the 1st of January next year. They say a final map then is uh, to be prepared by the council which will identify the land within scope and that the final map then is to be revised annually from 2025 onwards. In County Mead, there are already calls for more land to be made available for residential purposes. Let's uh, speak uh, to local independent councillor Brian Fitzgerald, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this publication of uh, what is available, or the draft publication by Mead County Council uh, today, uh, coincidentally, uh, comes uh, as you're about to bring a, a motion to the council, which would see more land dezoned. Yeah. Uh, good morning, Michael. Um, yes, uh, the, the, as you're aware, uh, during our county development plan uh, discussions, there was a considerable uh, tracts of land dezoned in the county uh, on the instructions, really, of the planning regulator uh, office. So what we were left with then was lands which had, was already earmarked to be used, to be brought into play post-2019 uh, in the previous plan. And all of those lands, or a considerable number of those lands, was uh, dezoned. Not realising what the implications of all of this was good, is going to have on the whole county, and indeed in other counties as well. For example, our census, uh, or those figures were based on the 2016 census, right. which, as we all know now, are completely out of date mm. uh, because there was an increase in the population of about 25,000 in County Mead. And they weren't prepared to listen, despite the fact that there was all sorts of eminent people coming forward with proposals and saying what the figures that were being used by the National Planning Framework were incorrect and should be adjusted, but nobody would listen. So we end up then with a huge housing crisis, not just in County Mead, but all over the country. But I'm not prepared like, to, to remedy the problems for the rest of the country. I'm more concerned about our own county. And I felt that it was necessary for us, rather than to be sitting back and whinging about it, that we would try and do something to try and alleviate the problem. Mm. And what I am proposing is lands that had already been zoned were fully scoped, in other words, for services and etc. Yeah. in the previous plan, that they should be brought into play because it'd be a quick way of doing it. Mm. But because with the best will in the world, as you know, by the time that if the, if the council in their wisdom decide to uh, agree with my motion, then the minister has to approve it. And then... Uh, if a person then wishes to apply for planning permission, it's going to take a few months before there would be a, uh, any building going on. So redesignate uh, land that was previously zoned for residential purposes as residential because it already has the services in place, water and sewage and that sort of thing wouldn't be a problem. Uh, but is it, is it necessary? Uh, the press release uh, from uh, the department today uh, in relation uh, to this draft map uh, that Mead County Council is publishing uh, is in order to try and um, uh, get the uh, residential zones 
land tax, uh, this 3% that they're talking about. But they say in this press release that only an estimated one-sixth of residential zoned land is activated for housing during a a local authority six-year development plan. Uh, That means that five-sixths of uh, land that is zoned residential isn't being used for housing. Yes, uh, that that may be true, Michael. Uh, It's not for me to contradict those figures that they're coming forward with. But the reality of it is that if if you have a limited amount of land and in limited areas, it's going to leave it uh, land very expensive which in turn makes makes the houses very expensive. Whereas I believe that if there is more land around the county, which had already been zoned, was brought into play, there would be far greater activity and far greater opportunities for young people to try and acquire a house. Because what we're having at the minute, like we don't build the houses. Mm. It's up to us to facilitate the building of houses. That is our duty as councils. Mm. There's so many people. What we don't want, Michael, is more and more young people losing hope and leaving the country. We have a number of people who left the country some years back who want to return with their families. Cannot do so because they cannot honestly find a suitable residence for themselves. It also has a huge impact on economic development within the county. Because if you don't have houses, you're not going to attract foreign direct investment because people want to have as many people as possible living as close to wherever they're going to uh, invest. And that is where I I have been very, very concerned about, as other members of the council have too. There's no point in just saying that Mm. it's just me. Quite a number of them are. Like, families need homes, Michael. What they don't need is six- and seven-storey apartment blocks for to bring up their children. And that's something that has not been taken into consideration by the planning regulator. Okay, but I it, believe, it, Michael, a lot of the problem goes back hmm. to the fact that when the National Planning Framework was put through the doll, it was rushed through. It wasn't scrutinised. It was guillotined. And this is where we're having our problems now. Two years ago, everybody in our own council and elsewhere were saying that the figures were wrong. But nobody was prepared to listen. Now we see the result of it. I want to see as many houses in this county and as many young people getting an opportunity. I got an opportunity 50 years ago, uh, as did a lot of people in my age group. I want to see the young people staying in our county, staying in our country, and not having to emigrate for to get a, a, a proper uh, facilities for their families. That okay. is not what we want in this country. Would you make millionaires out of landowners overnight? Uh, because uh, that quite often uh, would be the result of rezoning agricultural land to residential, wouldn't it? Yes, but the agricultural land, the land that was zoned mm. previously, and it was properly scoped, Michael, mm. that, that the facilities are the details and all of that is there. Yeah. We're introduced at the, during the course of the the Curtin County Development Plan. Hmm. But we knew that there was nothing that we were going to do because they were under what they referred to as a core strategy. There was figures given out by the, the under the National Planning Framework to say that the, the growth in the population has to be transferred to places like Galway, Limerick, Waterford and Cork. That was not much use. The people living on the peripheral of Dublin who, by and large, are working in Dublin or within the area. And that is where the real problem has arisen. 
but nobody was prepared to listen. Now we see the consequence of it. And in fairness to Dar O'Brien, I think he genuinely wants to try and resolve the problem. But, and he has said on a number of occasions, bring back those lands. So why can't do it? And like, mm. obviously, I have to wait for the debate. I'm not going to preempt what the other councillors are going to say. But I, from talking to the odd one of them, they are all very concerned at this because you can't see a future. Okay, uh, but there, the, the, there may be some exceptions, but generally speaking, you'd have to say that land was dezoned with good reason. Social housing or affordable housing. We have got to have more activity spread around the county, not just limited to certain towns and leaving it at that. Mm. That's not good enough. And in fairness to the, to the officials of Mead County Council, they were forced with that agenda on them. But, 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 but I'm not sure if you can hear me, Brian. Can you hear me? What we had to do, what we couldn't do. Brian. But, uh, I think the mistakes have been made on a high and they have to be rectified on a high. Mm. And I believe Dara O'Brien is prepared to do that. Okay, Brian. The council has to make decisions as well. Brian are, you, Brian, are you able to hear me there? Hello? Brian? Uh, Brian, I'm just, I'm not sure if, you, if there's a problem at your end or our end, but can you hear me? Yeah, Michael. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Brian, yeah, are you still there? <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah, no, I, I was trying to uh, ask you about the land that was dezoned and why it was dezoned. Uh, I'm not sure that you heard that question, but I'm sure that, like everything else, uh, maybe there's some exceptions to the rule, but that you'd have to imagine that that land was dezoned for good reason. No, I think we've lost the line altogether there with Brian Fitzgerald, uh, which uh, is unfortunate. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that a- another day because uh, Brian Fitzgerald's motion is uh, to go to meet council, County Council at the November meeting of uh, the local uh, authority. Uh, and uh, on that note, our, our thanks uh, to Margaret, uh, who says we can't have houses all over the countryside. Uh, we need to, to urbanise housing policies and this would just lead to more one-off houses housing and a lot of environmental problems. Well, thank you indeed for taking the time to make contact with us and our thanks too to Independent Councillor Brian Fitzgerald. Michael Reed on LMFM. And there'll be a lot of talk, no doubt, about climate change and saving uh, the planet when COP27 opens next week in Sharm el-Sheikh. The Irish Independent is reporting today that Michal Martin and Simon Coveney will be representing Ireland in Egypt for COP27 next week and then they'll hand the baton over to the Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan, and to Junior Minister Colin Brophy the following week. There is concern, though, about the authority that Eamon Ryan will have when he attends COP27. Let's hear what that concern is now. Pat McCormick is the President of the ICMSA, the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Surely the objective here is to save the planet and to, to stop climate change. Why should there be any concern? Well, you know, I suppose the concern is that we have one particular politician, a minister uh, for the environment that, that has a desire to go out and represent the people of Ireland. And that's, that's, that's his prerogative as minister. But, you know, to, to clinch a deal um, on his own personal best uh, is something that we would be opposed to. Uh, we have looked uh, very, very strongly and indeed requested from cabinet ministers as late as last night that I come back to the cabinet for discussion. Because, you know, we've seen the climate discussion happen here in Ireland over the last number of months. 
uh, where there was a potential for a 22 to 30% reduction in agriculture, the sector that I, I, I represent. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of negotiations had to go on there, and I finished up at 25%. Uh, so we need to be very, very careful uh, about what, what we sign up to into the future. Obviously, our aspiration is to reduce emissions to the minimum possible, uh, and we need to be doing it from a global perspective rather than a uh, parochial respective um, to, to, to achieve our overall ambition. And, uh, you know, it's very, very necessary that when decisions need to be made, mm. that Minister, Minister Ryan refers back to his cabinet colleagues and indeed his government colleagues. Well, it's hardly parochial, though, is it? I mean, it's a global crisis. Uh, there's it's, it's, it's a global crisis. Yeah. And that's why, mm. you know, it is very, very necessary to, to look at our global emissions and to see where we can possibly produce food in particular mm. um, uh, with the minimum of effect the global to the global um, targets and but certainly we feel that in Ireland and it is established that in Ireland we're the most environmentally efficient per kg of milk solids uh, within Europe and indeed one of the top uh, in the in the globe if not the top and and similarly fourth in Europe from a beef perspective so if we're to reduce food production here and we're to continue to feed the, pop- the global population and produce it elsewhere we're actually having environmental leakage and we're increasing our emissions rather than reducing them because they produce food in a less efficient, dairy and beef in particular, in a less efficient manner. Okay. Uh, but uh, what will that do for people uh, who aren't uh, alive? Uh, the uh, millions who stay st- face starvation in the Horn of Africa right now because it hasn't rained there for four years. Uh, or, or how will it... Uh, do anything to stop the weird weather with uh, people sunbathing in Spain last week? Well, well, what's what's necessary? What's necessary at this point in time is that there's an overall strategic uh, review of where where our, where our strengths and our weaknesses are from an environment from a global environmental aspiration. Isn't that I, isn't that I the do, idea of I COP twenty seven? Yeah, um, but you know we need to be very careful that the point of view is put forward and that the point of view is put forward strongly. And it is a consensus of government rather than an individual of government's viewpoint that's represented there. And that is, I suppose, what's necessary at this point in time. Um, You know, I once heard the now tarnished and Din Taoiseach talk about Ireland and describe it at a climate uh, thinking in Dublin as a food producing island. And that's exactly what we are. We're efficient at what we do from an environmental perspective. and from an economic perspective that, you know, it can be done in an efficient manner. Mm. Now, obviously, improvements can be made, and we have the Tagus Met Corps, we have the Dairy Vision Group, we have the Beef and Lamb Vision Group, and all of those are, are putting roadmaps in place to reduce our, over, our overall agricultural emissions as we move forward. And, uh, you know, There isn't a time, though, for these uh, initiatives. The planet is dying. Well, you know, with the people on the planet... The population of the planet is growing as well. Demand for dairy and beef is 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 growing, um, you know, and and we are in in a in a in a place or at this point in time, and I say at this point in time because it it is an evolving mm. it is an evolving challenge. Uh, we are in a position to have Australian to produce grass, to deliver beef and 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 milk uh, in in a in a the most efficient way from an environmental impact perspective uh, within the globe I would say, uh, certainly within Europe and uh, <clears throat> you know, we cannot afford to just turn off the food production switch 
um, at a time when other sectors, I mean, aviation sector, what are they doing? Um, you know, to reduce their emissions. The transport sector have have turned their hands off. Oh. Uh, Sorry, Pat, we lost you. We, we lost you there. I, I think we had the point that there's all these other sectors who are polluting the planet, uh, and they're not doing their bit. Uh, but the worst offender of all is uh, agriculture, is it not? Globally, no, it's not. Um, you know, and within Ireland, I suppose the difficulty we have is a per head of capita issue, and you know, the par- go back as far as the Paris Agreement and the fact that we've the highest per head of capita issue, issue from a nation's perspective isn't a fair assumption because if you reflect on it, we export about 88 to 90% of our products, whether it's dairy or beef, uh, and those emissions are, are, are here in Ireland where the production is, and yes, Germany and Mercedes, uh, its emissions, and indeed the, the, the oil that's imported from, from Russia, um, its emissions are also um, counted, accounted for here. So there are huge challenges with the accountancy of this. Uh, from, an, from an, a food export and island perspective, equally, I suppose you know there there, there are many many issues as regards uh, the lack of transparency or the lack of accountability uh, of sequestration on farms uh, and what's sequestered uh, by grass, by hedgerows, by trees, um, you know, and does 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 the whole uh, grid. Uh, that, that mm, needs to be looked mm, at at this mm, point in time no, where farmers no, receive fairness. That should offset some of the emissions that the uh, uh, cows are putting into the atmosphere as such. But uh, at the same time, you talk about the demand uh, for dairy and beef. Uh, should the objective not be to reduce that demand and to supply alternatives to dairy and beef? Well, you know, it's not, it's not something that can be done overnight. And equally, if it was done, there'd be a huge carbon release uh, from the soil because that would involve killing the soil. Uh, so certainly there, there is an element of scientists out there, or there are an element of scientists out there, who believe that that would have a huge impact in a negative manner uh, on our emissions and our environmental status if that was to happen uh, across the, uh, in a widespread uh, policy across the board. Um, you know, again, I go back to it, I suppose, sequestration and what's sequestered on, on land in the form of grass and in the form of uh, hedgerows. And, uh, you know, I suppose our politicians are very quick to point out, uh, and, and indeed our science, some of our scientists, because there is a divide among scientists on, on the opinion of agriculture, and we need to get clarity on that. Uh, and I suppose ultimately, you know, the interview started with our Minister for the Environment uh, going to COP27 and, uh, you know, wanting to have the power the entire power of the government uh, to sign up to any deal. And, uh, you know, nobody, and I, and I lead a farm organisation, and it's only a miniature a miniature level of, of government, but you always come back to your board. Uh, it's a policy I have had, and it's a policy that Eamon Ryan should have as well, so that mm. he is sure that the people that, you know, he he, rep- he is elected by, by city folk, uh, but that the government in its entirety are elected by a fair representation, it's probably fair to say, of the okay. general population. And you don't believe uh, that there's support for the Green Party in rural Ireland, I take it? I, did, I didn't say that. I know that, but that certainly was the clear implication. No, I, I simply said that, you know... Eamon Ryan was elected by city folk and country folk look to other politicians. I, I, I took it to imply that there isn't support for the Green Party was, in rural it was, Ireland. It was very clear, Michael. It was very clear that... Yeah. The government TDs, 
the government TDs and indeed the government ministers have support from across the spectrum. They're representative of the spectrum of people that are in this country and the interests of, of all those people. Okay. And they need to be represented in its entirety. OK, Pat, I have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you indeed for your time. And thank for you, Michael. As always, Pat McCormick, President of the ICMSA, the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association, brings our programme to its conclusion. Chris Murray was in the control tower. Maggie McGuire researched. I, Michael Godwilling, will see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.